KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Hey, everybody, it's Flashpoint host Cherry Gregg. I just wanted to say I appreciate all of your support of the Flashpoint show and podcast. Would you do me a favor? Would you subscribe to the podcast and be sure to rate and review? We need your reviews to get us to the top. Have a happy 2021. Now back to the show. Coming up. It's Valentine's Day weekend and we're all about love. Flashpoint style. We haven't come as far as we might like to think we have. After a multiracial couple is attacked in North Philadelphia, we take a look at interracial marriage. There are a lot of people out there who look at couples like, you know, the two of us. And not only do they not think that we're a couple, but if they do, they might not think positively on it. Do well, this interview dozens of interracial pairs reflects on what they learned about race and relationships. Then some Philadelphia school students could be headed back for in-person classes later this month. But teachers say not so fast. Getting our children children back to in-person instruction is critical. An expert lays out the issues and discusses impact on our students. We'll be right back. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at donors1.org. This is Flashpoint and I'm Cherry Gregg. This is our annual Valentine's Day love show where we talk about love Flashpoint style. So this year, the focus is on interracial love because in recent days, a woman claimed she was brutally attacked in North Philly because of her interracial relationship. She is white and her boyfriend is black. The story was reported on CBS 3 Eyewitness News last Friday. We cannot forget that mixing of races was illegal in many states less than 60 years ago. So how far have we come? I have Farrah Parks and Brad Linder, producers of The Loving Project, here to discuss. Welcome to Flashpoint. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. So I stumbled upon uh, The Loving Project recently, and although it ran in 2017, explain what it is and why you did it. Uh, Well, The Loving Project is a limited-run podcast series we did in 2017, which was the 50th anniversary of Loving v. Virginia. Loving v. Virginia is a Supreme Court case that made it legal for interracial couples to marry nationwide. Before that, there were 16 states in which it was illegal. And so we wanted to commemorate that and we wanted to tell stories about what it was like 50 years later for interracial couples of all kinds. So we interviewed 25 different couples over the course of the year, some of whom were married. The couple that had been married the longest had gotten married a year after loving. um, And the most recently married couple had gotten married that very year. We interviewed a couple who had been um, part of the one of the plaintiffs in the ACLU's case to legalize gay marriage in Pennsylvania. So there was just a a great uh, diversity of couples all from Philadelphia, though. Yeah, I loved uh, listening to the stories. Uh, What did you learn by doing this? It, it was interesting because we ourselves were a married couple who are um, Farah is black and, and I'm white. And we got married in 2006 at a time when, you know, we didn't necessarily think it was super common, but there weren't a lot of barriers to the two of us coming together and and uh, getting married. But, you know, when we decided to create this project, we were like, you know, let's let's talk to other people. Let's do something to sort of celebrate and commemorate. And we heard from people, uh, as Farrah mentioned, who had been married for a very long time, talking about what it was like in the 60s and 70s and having to deal with friends and family who didn't necessarily accept their relationships. But we also heard from people who had been together a much briefer period of time who might have met in the 
2010s or however you were supposed to say that decade. <laughs> I don't really remember. But in more recent years, not just necessarily family and friends reacting, but the way that they were perceived in public, the perceptions that people would have about who fits together as a family and who doesn't necessarily look like they fit together as a family. Uh, we heard a lot of people talk about being out with their children and being assumed to be the nanny or you know, foster parent or something else, because people just didn't look at that child and that parent and see two different skin tones and think, oh, that's a family unit. So there are a lot of sort of microaggressions, intentional or unintentional, that would still be experienced by people who are in relationships like ours, honestly. So I think what we learned is that, you know, to answer the question you asked, to start off with, we haven't come as far as we might like to think we have, you know, people do still get looks and stares and comments. And especially as Brad mentioned, once you have children, you know, we had one woman who said that, you know, a white woman married to an Indian man and her children look darker than her naturally. And another white woman told her, you shouldn't let your children go out in the sun so much. You know, I mean, mm things people feel empowered to say. And so I think I learned a lot because we don't have children about, you know, this added layer of microaggressions um, that comes up when you have children. We have not come as far as we would like to think we have. Yeah, and I, I have to say, um, were you surprised by this? Honestly, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, because, you know, people, some people were in their own bubbles. They were interracial couple. To them, it seemed extremely normal. I don't see this person's race. I see this is a person. And then it's like other people come in and all of a sudden it's like they're, the bubble is burst. Is that how it feels? Did you see that as a pattern throughout the people you talked to? Yeah, I think so, for sure. Yeah, and it's also, I mean, it's interesting that the 50th anniversary happened to fall in 2017. So we started this uh, right after Donald Trump had been elected president. We started doing interviews. And during the course of his first year in office was when we were doing this. And this is, you know, after we'd had, the nation had had the first black president and a lot of people were like, oh, you know, black president, we're in a post-racial society. We had this, you know, immense backlash, it felt like in terms of racism coming out from, you know, behind the curtain and people being very blatant in their attitudes. And so talking to people at that time, I think was also really interesting because we had um, one, one interview that really sort of stays in my mind is a couple talking about their own relationship and and thinking like they'd been together for a couple of years at that point and and they thought that they knew each other and loved each other really well but the wife was a black woman and she had to think like who is it that voted for Donald Trump and she thought did my husband vote for Donald Trump he's a white man white men voted for Donald Trump and he didn't but, but like you know these are the things that you start to wonder that maybe you weren't wondering about when you were just like oh you know we have so many interests in common and we love each other and we are living our lives together but at a time when racism is so prevalent, how can you not wonder about, you know, sort of the hidden depths and, and so on? So I think I think these are things that people have to navigate, not just as they go out as a couple into the world, but also within their own relationships, facing things that might be different in the way that a couple perceives things or that the two individuals uh, perceive things. Yeah. One of the things I found that was interesting was couples would thank us, you know, for having interviewed them, which seemed weird to me because, you know, I took up your time, but, you know, they felt like it had opened them up to a conversation that they might not necessarily have had or in that great depth, you know, they're just living their lives being together, but not a lot of couples spend a lot of time talking about their racial differences and 
what it means in context, sort of in a broader political context and in the context of history with the loving decision. And so I think that was also um, one thing that came out of it, like couples spent some time being more introspective about what it was like for them. The, the Loving Project Twitter page uh, sent out a tweet late last year. There was an article that argued that the legalization of interracial marriage has not resulted in a more liberating environment for interracial relationships. We just saw an alleged hate crime against an interracial couple here in North Philadelphia in 2021. I just, you know, want you to react to that, the fact that this happened. This was a white woman and a black man and a black woman attacked the white woman here, um, you know, and used said language, according to her, that specifically addressed their, their coupledom. React to that. And then how do we liberate? I mean, what is what does that mean to you? Ooh, that's yeah. a big one. What's liberation? <laughs> I'll, I'll start with the first one. I think, you know, one of the couples that we talked to, the, the husband was a lawyer, and he talked a lot about how policy and culture sort of go hand in hand. So sometimes, you know, when, let's say when gay marriage became legal, there had been a shift in cultural norms and and beliefs so that there was a critical mass of people who were like, we think gay marriage is okay. And that's why there wasn't, I mean, there were still people who were opposed to it once it was made legal, but there wasn't the sort of backlash there would have been had it been made legal 30 years later. That said, it wasn't 100% of people being pro-gay marriage, you know? And so sometimes policy goes before culture and sometimes it comes after. But yeah, you know, racism, you can't legislate your way out of racism and out of bigotry. And so, you know, Brown v. Board of Education makes desegregation uh, (laughs) illegal, but schools are more more segregated than ever, you know? And so a lot of that has to do with how individuals choose to to, uh, conduct themselves, but also what the societal norms are and what these, you know, systems are doing, how they're pushing people together or apart. We don't know all the particulars of this specific, you know, hate crime in in Philadelphia, but it doesn't surprise me that these sorts of things are still happening. It disappoints me, obviously. While there's growing acceptance of interracial relationships and interracial marriage, Pew put out a, a massive report a couple of years ago looking at sort of where we were in 2015, and more people than ever had said, that they're that it's a good thing that interracial relationships happen and more people than ever were in interracial relationships but it's also worth noting that black white relationships are still one of the smaller ones there are more people who are um you know hispanic people or asian people who are in interracial relationships than say black and white couples together and so you know it's one thing to sort of abstractly say it it's another thing to you know, have your own personal beliefs, which might come out in a situation when these sorts of crimes happen. And again, we don't know the particulars of this of this individual crime, but it doesn't surprise me that there are still people who are lashing out because growing acceptance, it's still, I think, less than 50%. There are a lot of people out there who look at couples like, a, you know, the two of us, and not only do they not think that we're a couple, but if they do, they might not think positively on it. There's still a lot of work to be done. That was part of why we wanted to do the podcast and why we wanted to sort of focus on these things in general was to not just look at the celebration and be like, great, it's legal, let's celebrate 50 years of happiness. Because, you know, as that article that we we uh, linked to on our Twitter page was uh, saying, like, interracial love will not necessarily save us. You know, that alone doesn't do it. Individuals being in relationship with each other doesn't solve racism in society. It can help a little bit in terms of, you know, as a white man, because I am married to a black woman, I think about a lot of things that I probably wouldn't think about otherwise. But it takes a lot more than that, because 
What about all the people who aren't in interracial relationships? You know, it takes it takes all of us working together to combat racism and to combat those things. I think about what all that happened in 2020, racial unrest and the fact that it was so interracial, the protests themselves. You think you think about the loving case, you think about all the biracial children, you think about all the friendships that crossed openly cross racial lines now. Do you think all of this kind of ties together? Do you think we've come far in that regard when you saw what was happening in 2020? I think so. I mean, even though uh, interracial marriage won't save the world, you know, one of the things that does help change people's opinions is just having lived experience with Mm. people that are different from them, getting to know them. And increasingly that is true. And younger people, especially like college age, I think college is where a lot of people sort of make these friendships and develop these relationships are more open to that. And I think one of the things that happened leading up to 2020, I think the Black Lives Matter movement sort of kicked off a discussion about what was really happening and sort of not letting people forget about police violence. But I think a lot of white people started doing some work, you know, started looking at the role they played, started doing more work. You saw books like White Fragility coming out. And, you know, there's a new book called about White Feminism, you know, sort of the ways in which white feminists have failed Black feminists. And so I think All of that is part of, you know, people sort of coming together and beginning to really reckon with the roles that each of us play and the ways in which we have been complicit or part of systems of oppression. And I think about you, Brad, because you mentioned in our comments that you think about things that you probably wouldn't have thought about because of who you chose to marry. A lot of parents of uh, biracial children think about things as well, you know, that would never have come up. Do you see that ripple effect throughout the couples that you've talked to in this project? Some of the most powerful conversations we had were with white parents of biracial children realizing what it means to be raising a black child in America. Um, Something that might come unfortunately naturally to black parents when you have to have the talk about how do you behave in public? How do you make sure that you come home safe? Like these are conversations that Black Americans have been having for years that a lot of white Americans don't know about. I didn't know about it growing up. My parents never told me, you know, don't put your hands in pockets in the store. My parents never told me, you know, all of these things. And seeing that sort of heaviness hit a white parent all at once, as opposed to over the course of their life, is really kind of remarkable and tragic. Tragic that like any parent has to have that conversation with their kid. Tragic that the white parents, that it's new to them when it's not necessarily to their partners. But I think help but have that sort of realization, uh, whether it's about, you know, smaller microaggressions, whether it's about hair or whether it's about raising children, there's like so much to learn. And and it's not all negative either, right? Like I think I think one thing that when you have conversations about race, you're often talking about racism. But there's also just the fact that I think it's fascinating, like being in a relationship with somebody who is different from you in some way. Not only are we black and white, but, you know, I was raised Jewish, Farrah was raised uh, uh, Christian. She grew up in Jamaica. I grew up in Cleveland, Ohio. Like there's so many differences that we get to learn about each other and about what it's like to be somebody else to some degree. And I think that's that's what's fun about any relationship. And, you know, I just really enjoyed sitting in on conversations with couples talking about their relationships and what they learned through their relationships as well. And race just happens to be, I was going to say a complicating factor. I'll say a complicating factor anyway, complicating sometimes in a positive way, as well as sometimes in a way that presents challenges. And I have to give you all kudos, the diversity 
of the couples you selected was amazing. You know, LGBTQ, different races, even the gender of the folk, it just switched it all around. Age, length of marriage. It was just very, uh, and it, it was all different. Mm -hmm. Um, the different experiences, where they were from, where they grew up, how they grew up, religion. It was just so many things. Um, So kudos on, first of all, finding so many couples and convincing them to talk to you. Was Mm -hmm. there a secret there? Journalist to journalist, like, please let me know. That's that's a lot of pounding the pavement. And once we started doing it, you know, people would tell their friends and whatever. But yeah, one of the things we were really uh, pushing for was a diversity of like, just like you said, ages and, you know, the, the gender and LGBT. And one of the things that I found really interesting was I was like, at some point, the stories are going to start sounding the same. You know, I I was just convinced that they were, but every story felt completely different, you know, uh, which was really fascinating because that's also part of the, we are not a monolith, you know, whatever race we are. And then you have, you know, there were some immigrants and, you know, lots of different experiences. So, yeah, I was we, we were really happy with the diversity of the folks that we got, the diversity of experiences and honestly, just how open people were because they didn't know us from Adam, most of them. And we just walked into their house and set down a mic in front of them <laughs> and we started talking. And, and, and pretty much, like almost every interview just started with a question. So tell us how you met. And. There was one couple we asked, how did you meet? And 30 minutes later, we got to ask the second question because the story was just so fascinating. There's just something magical about hearing people tell their own stories in their own words and getting to sit in on that. It was really a privilege. Yeah, yeah. it was a really good project. Um, and I'm sorry, I didn't know about it when it when it launched um, in 2017. Um, but, you know, as we as we get ready to wrap up, what are you hoping to see? I mean, we're having more conversations about race now than I've ever experienced in my whole life. Um, And I think your project allows people, couples, families to even talk about it. Do you think more conversations are needed? And do you hope people use your project even now as a starting point? Absolutely. We definitely need more conversations. Um, We definitely need a lot of listening and like really listening to understand, not to, you know, to wait until there's the moment where you can talk. And yeah, I really hope that one of the really exciting things that came out of the project, because it was a one-year project, was that one of the participants who is an educator worked with a group of students to create a loving project study guide, which has projects from K through high school where they can use the podcast to educate kids about diversity and about, you know, other cultures. And so Hopefully it lives on in that way. We actually do know of one class at one of the universities on the main line. We were getting a lot of hits from the website. Oh, yeah. That's great. And just hearing those um, conversations and sparking those conversations in their own networks, I think, yeah, the more we can talk and reach levels of understanding, I think the better off we'll be. Yeah. And I think when we when we created the show, we didn't necessarily know who our intended audience was. Over time, we realized it was other people who are in these sorts of relationships who are really hungry to hear more stories like their own, to realize that they're not alone, that there are more people out there. But I think it's also, it's powerful to hear these kinds of stories told or other stories from people who are not necessarily living the same experience as you. And And so the conversations, like if you have Black friends and Black family members and Black loved ones and you are a white person, yes, you should have those conversations, but you shouldn't necessarily put a lot of weight on expecting somebody else to do the work for you when you have your own work to do to try to understand these things. So seeking out media, whether it's reading books, whether it's listening to podcasts, whether it's 
uh, finding groups to volunteer with uh, in, in community organizing. Like there are a lot of things that people can do to sort of work through their own sort of cultural biases in order to make it a more accepting world for everybody. And that sounds like a lot, you know, like a lot of white people are like, I don't want to have to do all that homework. Why can't I just be me? But like, you know, there's, we live in a society where white supremacy is, has infiltrated everything. And I think if we want to be in a place that some people pretend we're already at, where race doesn't matter, that's, that's unlikely to ever happen. But if it ever does, it's going to be because people who have privilege learn how to do the work of listening and working together and, and being in conversation in order to change that. And that's what leads to multiracial groups being out with uh, with the protesters this summer. That's what leads to people showing up at the polls or candidates who support policies that are more equitable for everybody. And I don't know that our podcast had anything to do with that, but I do think that listening to stories that are relatable, even if they're not from experiences like your own, I think that that is a powerful way of opening your mind. Well, I want to say thank you to you, both Sarah and Brad, for coming on Flashpoint and having this beautiful discussion. Please check out their amazing set of podcasts at lovingproject.com. Thank you so much. Thank you. Next up, the debate over whether to send Philly kids back to school. Let's do better than what we're doing now. An expert takes a look at the short and long-term impact of distance learning on students. We'll be right back. Hey, Flashpoint family, if you like what you hear, why don't you stick around and take a listen to some of our past episodes or our Flashpoint extras. One example is our exclusive interview with the one and only DJ Jazzy Jeff. He contracted COVID-19. He had some dark moments, but he survived. Take a listen to his journey. Another example is our Pat's Newsmaker of the Week, Andrew Wyatt. He's spokesman for actor and comedian Bill Cosby. He explains why they're petitioning the governor to hopefully get the cause out of jail early. All of this and more. Please subscribe to the podcast and rate and review. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Our Newsmaker of the Week is the push to reopen Philadelphia schools. District Superintendent Dr. William Hyde says schools are safe to reopen February 22nd and in-person classes for pre-K to second grade are expected to resume the same day as a separate effort to get teachers vaccinated rolls out. But what about the kids in all of this? With me to discuss is a member of the Pennsylvania State Board of Education, Sandra Dungy-Glenn. Sandra, welcome back to Flashpoint. Thank you, Sherry. It's good to be back. We are in a quandary right now. I mean, the teachers union has expressed concern saying teachers are afraid to come back to schools. Of course, the school district says schools will be safe for in-person instruction as of February 22nd. Can you lay out what's happening on all sides? First of all, I think one of the things that we all should be united on is getting our children back to in-person instruction is critical. I I can't overstate that fact. And the amount of time and learning that has really been lost, and that is in spite of everyone's best efforts, teachers, family members, this virtual thing and virtual learning is not working well for many of our children, particularly children who are challenged because of home environments and other things, working parents. It's just not working well for our children, and they're losing ground academically, socially, emotionally, and we have to fix that. I think we should all be united on that outcome. It is a reality that in Philadelphia, our schools have been uh, in disrepair because of our facilities and the underfunding for many years. 
there and it is built one thing is built on another if you don't have enough money to run the school districts adequately you can't keep up with routine maintenance and you know if you're in your own house if you see a little thing happen and you don't get on top of it it becomes a bigger problem so then you have deferred maintenance you haven't dealt with the problem the roof is leaking the leak becomes bigger and just now exp expand that to 300 facilities across a school district. You've got a better way to do ventilation, but if you can't afford to put it in, that ventilation system is no longer up to standard. Some of the buildings are 100 years old. Uh, the average building is 65 years old. Many of them need to be really replaced. All of those things are problems in the school district with their facilities. So you have that on one side of the table. That's a reality. Now on the other side, you have a pandemic and you have the need to bring children back into school buildings that have not been adequately maintained. It is a big hurdle to get over to get that then ready. You really do have to look at it, I believe, building by building. It sounds like, and I'm sitting on the outside, it sounds like there are some school buildings where you could safely bring children and teachers, people, into the buildings at some occupancy level, learning could happen. It sounds like there are other buildings that aren't ready for that. So you need to take this, in my opinion, on a building by building decision about where you're ready and where you're not. What grades and how many children can you serve? And where do they show up? Because the goal has to be, to the best of our ability, getting children back to in-person instruction. So I think that really is a challenge. It's not something you can do whole cloth. You can't look at it, I don't think, as a district, I really think you have to look at it building by building. And then the other question is, are there other spaces that we could use for some of this to happen? Where do our universities fit in? Where do our community centers fit in? Where do libraries fit in? Are any of them possible short-term solutions? That's the question that I think as a city, there should be some thinking about. You know, I don't know the answer to that. I, and, yeah. and, and it's more than what any one person can handle. This really has to be a comprehensive city, school district, institutions, health center, PFT, all on the same page with the outcome being get our children back to learning. Because that really, really, really is something we can't escape. Um, I don't know any way around that. So let, let me stop Yeah, there. And and right now the focus is pre-K to second grade. Mm -hmm. And I know you work with a lot of young children. Why is this so critical? And 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 talk about this divide um, between them and then the older kids too, because all the kids um, could be suffering right now. Yeah, all of our children are suffering. Um, uh, Jeffrey Canada, who runs the Harlem Children's Zone in New York and has been at this community-based education thing for probably almost 30 years now, he says it best. He says, this is the worst and, and, and most um, tragic educational experience in our children's lifetime. And that's for our children at all parts of it, even up into colleges and universities. This is not good for, for learning, it's not. I think they start with starting with the young children first for a number of reasons. First, they can't be home by themselves. So if there's any group that is really stressing families out, is probably the youngest children because parents have to make decisions about who can take care of this child. I cannot leave him or her in a house by themselves. So, so what does that look like? So I think that's one reality of it. 
Second, at the beginning of the learning experience is where those fundamental skills are put in place. You're learning to read, you're learning your numbers, you're getting socialized. And so they are probably feeling it the most and it's gonna be the hardest for them to catch up if we don't get those foundational skills and learning and just getting them in the right environment in the beginning or as close to the beginning as possible that's probably they're probably going to feel it the most but it's every phase you can argue that at any stage our middle grade children who are making that transition to high school it's hurting them tremendously young people who are preparing to leave our schools and go into the work world or college it's hurting them our children aren't being able to qualify for scholarships because they're not being able to play their sports so i mean this is it's a horrible situation all the way around we need to and we need to own that fact it's it, we can't minimize the level of, of damage, I'll use that word, that is doing to our children. And it's damage that is not gonna be made up for in six months or a year. We need to get our minds set around providing comprehensive, wraparound, year-round educational opportunities for our children over the next several years, summer, after school, uh, Saturdays, because we've got to make up for the lost time. But remember, our children, two thirds of them were behind before the pandemic. So not only lost time, we really need to be accelerating their learning to get them where they need to be to prepare for them for life. And that's serious and it's comprehensive. It's It's gotta be intensive and it's gotta be consistent and it has to be multi-year and you're not gonna do it for free. It's gonna cost some yeah. money. Yeah, and I know that uh, you work with an organization for your former uh, chair of the School Reform Commission. So you're very familiar with the Philadelphia Public School District. But now you're working with an organization that actually is specifically designed, had designed a, a sort of solution to the issues with virtual learning. Um, and now you guys are designing a solution to once we get back to school, there's more support that is needed and you touched upon that what what are you thinking about and and how and you kind of like said it's going to be serious but what kind of ideas are out there for even once they get back to school there's a lot of work to be done so we did the philadelphia community stakeholders which is a group i'm a part of we were fortunate to be able to come together with a number of partners and pilot a learning pod and parent resource center and so for 10 weeks at bible way baptist church we offered a safe space where families could bring children between grades kindergarten and fifth grade. We were able to accommodate 30 children. We had them uh, working with in-person with instructors. They weren't, they weren't certified teachers, but they were instructors and they helped the children connect with their virtual learning. That was one of the things they did. So the children could come in, had a, uh, their own little desk and chairs and we had everything spaced out dealing with COVID protocols and masks and sanitizers, the whole nine yards. All of that was done, but it provided a space where the instructors were there to help the children connect with their schools online. They were there to help the children navigate moving from you know Zoom to Zoom or Google Meet to classroom, making sure their, their tablets were charged. So they were there to help give them assistance for their virtual learning, but we were also able to give the instructors professional development so they could help provide some accelerated learning to close those learning gaps. So they did some other extra exercises around literacy and math with the children. So that was, so we provided that 7.30 a.m. to 4.30 p.m. We also had a parent resource center. So there was somebody there 
constantly calling and talking with the parents to help them with issues they may be confronting. And we had a behavioral health specialist who stopped in for a couple of hours every day just to observe the children and to just see if there were any particular social emotional challenges they might be having, help the instructors understand how to support them with that, but also connect with the parents. And it was a great support for the schools. We heard from teachers who were literally in tears who said, look, this is the first time so-and-so has logged in and I'm just so glad to see her because it's now October and I didn't know how she was doing. I didn't know what was going on. Um, and then the teachers were able, we were, our instructors were able to tell the teachers, well, they're having trouble with this piece or they need some more homework help on this end. So it was a great resource. We wanna be able to offer that model and say, whether again, recreation centers, the city has access centers. There are other places where this model could be applied and hopefully it could be done in multiple sites the idea of having adults assisting what's going on in schools and then able to do that kind of thing as an out of school time activity. Thinking about that, we're talking to the school district about working with them around their summer program. We're talking with the city access centers about taking that model and incorporating it in their access centers because the idea is connecting caring adults, supporting the children's learning, providing those kind of that kind of social emotional support and being a resource for parents. We can do it in a number of kinds of settings, but we just have to be committed to taking it on and making that a priority. That's what we believe. And then aligning our uh, resources to kind of carrying that kind of support out. Yeah, because this is a long, we have a long stretch ahead of us. Even if we get kids back to school, even if everything works out and kids are able to go back to school this February or early March, this is a long stretch of work we got to do to make up. Yeah, it is. It really is. And I think, you know, the thing we all have to do, just like if you're in a family, you all have to decide, you know, we're going to focus on the children. Yeah, I know we can argue and we can fuss and fight as the adults. But if we decide that we're going to do what's in the best interest of the children, sometimes we can put our differences aside. You know, we can say, all right, it's not exactly the way I want it. But what is it? Don't let the good uh, perfect be the enemy of the good. Let's do better than what we're doing now and getting our children back to instruction with adults and teachers in person in any safe setting we can find. I think that should be our mission. I mean, that, that's what I believe we can kind of unite around and figure it out then. What can that look like? Given what we have, even understanding what we don't have, What can that look like and how can we do it step-by-step, classroom-by-classroom, building-by-building, but let's be about it. Thank you so much, Sandra Dungy-Glenn, for coming on Flashpoint, talking about this issue in the news. Anytime, Sherry. You have a great day. Next up, she's helping level the playing field for those vulnerable to COVID-19. Hundreds of times a day, people were asking me how they could find a vaccine. Suburban doctor who's playing vaccine matchmaker. We'll be right back. Patriot Home Care is here to help when their clients need them most. If you're a caregiver and feel uncertain about where you're working now, call Patriot today. Patriot Home Care is now paying up to $600 in hazard pay to its current and newly hired direct care workers, recognizing their hard work and caring for our consumers during these uncertain times. Hazard pay will be up to $600 per direct care worker. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. That's PatriotHomeCare.org. Or call 1-877-535-5550. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Cherry Gregg. Be sure to subscribe to the Flashpoint podcast by downloading the Radio.com app, Apple Podcast app, or other platforms. 
All you have to do is search Flashpoint. Now, we here at KYW, we are all about community, and a suburban doctor is connecting folks in desperate need of the COVID-19 vaccine to resources on where they can get the shot. Here to talk about the pay a COVID vaccine matchmaker is our Patriot Home Care Changemaker, Dr. Christine Myers of Christine Meyer, MD and Associates. Dr. Christine, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. So all of this began when you tried to get your parents a vaccine appointment. What did you find? My in-laws are high risk and we've been trying to find them vaccines. It's impossible. But really it was my practice patients. Hundreds of times a day, people were asking me how they could find a vaccine, just really struggling with where to even begin. You saw that there was this need. Why was there so much confusion among the folks who really were high risk and needed the shot? So I think it's a couple things. I mean, the main problem is that there are just way more people who need the vaccine than there is vaccine. So it is a constant race to get those few available vaccines into the hands of the people who really need them. The other problem is those few vaccines that we have are basically just accessible online. There's very few resources where you could schedule a vaccine by calling. When you think about it, most of the people at highest risk are elderly, they're, you know, 75 and up, or they have a lot of medical problems, they might not have the connectivity to be on a computer all day, or even the physical ability to sit online all day trying to secure an appointment. And so you took action, got a a little crew together. And and what did y'all do? When it snows in my practice, everybody works from home, you know, we do telemedicine. So I called on them all to basically just start working from home, scheduling vaccine appointments for our patients. Two hours, we had 1,200 emails. There is no way we're going to be able to help 1,200 people today. So I was like, well, how can I connect more people like my young tech savvy, you know, MAs with people who really need vaccines. And I was just like, I'll make a Facebook group. Within like a few hours, it had 3000 members. My idea was to make it where we could connect one person who needed a vaccine with one person who could help them find a vaccine appointment. And it's a lot of that is happening. We call the people who need the vaccine seekers and the people who can help them find one finders. So we use hashtags to connect people in the group. But what has happened is it's become this crowdsourcing site where people are just posting tips of where they've had the most success or where they've been blocked. So a lot of people are just doing it on their own using the tips that they're getting out of this group. The people in their 70s, 80s or beyond, those are the ones that we're connecting with specific helpers who just get their information and then do all of the legwork for them. Tell the people the name of it. They can go find all the tips. PA COVID Vaccine Matchmakers. It's an open group. Pretty much anybody who lives in the area and is looking for a vaccine can join. You could be very active and actually seek help and get help or you could just use the group as a resource. Dr. Christine Meyer, founder of the brand uh, new PA COVID vaccine matchmaker on Facebook. Good luck and thank you for all you do. That's it for Flashpoint. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is Flashpoint Show. And since we always wrap it up with a quote, here's one from 6th century Islamic leader Imam Ali. Eyesight is useless if the insight is blind. The show was produced by Ariane Fulcher and me, your host, Cherry Gregg. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life donor program. Organ donors save lives. Until next week, thanks for listening.